What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. to a very important part in the Gospel of John where Jesus now declares to his disciples that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know, Jesus knew that his hour, that his time has come for him to ultimately be sacrificed on the cross, for him to go through some of the worst and most uh, difficult suffering that any person could ever go through. And the verses we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see three responses to the fact that the hour for Jesus to go through all of this has now come upon him. And first, we're going to see Jesus's response to this hour. Second, we're going to see God the Father's response to this hour. And then third, we're going to see a challenge that Jesus gives to those who are listening, which would include us, of how we should respond to the fact of the hour and all that Jesus is going to go through uh, on the cross for us. And so something we're going to see with all three of these responses is that they have the same ultimate purpose. You see, as Jesus reflects upon the fact that his hour has come for him to suffer, for him to die, his response reveals the ultimate purpose for why he came for why he was here on this earth, for why he willingly sacrificed himself. And the response of God the Father also reveals the ultimate purpose for why he sent his son to this earth. And the challenge that Jesus gives to you and to me of how we should respond, it's also connected to this ultimate purpose of the Father and of the Son. And so as we look at these three responses this morning, We're going to answer three very important questions that hopefully you have asked as you study through Scripture. The first question is, what was Jesus' greatest purpose? And when I use that term, greatest purpose, what I'm asking is, what was the ultimate thing that Jesus sought to do when he was here on this earth? Now, you look at Jesus' life, we've been looking at it through the Gospel of John. Obviously, there were many wonderful things that Jesus did, but there was one ultimate purpose, something that he wanted to do above all the rest of the things that he sought to accomplish that demonstrated his greatest purpose for why he was here. So the first important question we're going to answer this morning is, what was Jesus' greatest purpose? And the second question we're going to answer is, what was God the Father's greatest purpose? And we're going to note that the Father and the Son had the same exact purpose in what they were seeking to accomplish. And the third important question we're going to answer is, what should be our greatest purpose? Our greatest purpose here in this life, it should be the same as God the Father. It should be the same as God the Son's greatest purpose as well. You know, the reality is that most people have a purpose in their life 
that is greater than other things that they are doing in their life. You know, most people have that ultimate thing that they're seeking and living for. It's not their only purpose in life, but it is the thing that they live for the most. It's the thing that is most important to them. You know, for some people, the greatest purpose in their life is attaining wealth. You know, that's the ultimate thing that they're seeking and living for. You know, for others, their greatest purpose is power. For some, it's fame. Others, it's family. Others, it's work. Others, it's love of, of some person. You know, the list goes on and on of, of what are the greatest purposes that people have in this life. But something we need to understand is the huge impact that that greatest purpose has in your life specifically. You see, whatever your greatest purpose is in life, it shapes everything else you do. It'll shape your priorities. It'll shape your goals. It'll shape your actions. It'll shape your attitudes. All four of those areas are shaped by whatever great purpose you have. For example, if your greatest purpose was to be wealthy, to get a lot of money, then your priorities would be centered around making lots of money. That'd be the number one priority of your life. I want to get as much money as I possibly can. And your goals would be centered around getting money, making more money. Your attitude would be centered around making money. So if you were making money, hey, your attitude would be good. You'd be in, in a good place. But if you weren't making money, then your attitude would be bad because you're not meeting that greatest purpose in your life. Your actions would be centered around making money. You know, All that you do would be kind of focused and come back to, what can I do to make more money? Money will dictate your life because that is your greatest purpose. You see, what your greatest purpose is, is extremely important because it does shape your life. It shapes all these different areas of your life. So as believers, we should seek to want our greatest purpose to be what God tells us our greatest purpose should be, that we should follow the example that God gives to us and recognize that what our greatest purpose is, is going to definitely shape the way in which we live our life and the impact that we make for God in this world. So let's discover what the greatest purpose is that Jesus had, that the Father had, and that ultimately we should have. And we're going to start with Jesus' response to the fact that His hour has now come, starting in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Before we look at Jesus' greatest purpose, I want you to notice this response that he has. He, 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 remember last week he tells his disciples, hey, you know, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now we're seeing this posing of a question of how should I respond to the reality of what is about to come in my life in just a matter of 
days. And I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus was fully aware of what he was about to go through. He was fully aware of the suffering that was coming his way. It wasn't something that took him off guard. It wasn't something that he was surprised by. You know, when these things transpired, he knew that they were coming. Right now, as he looks towards what is about to happen in his life, he knows all this suffering is coming in a matter of days. And there's really 10 main things that Jesus suffered. And, you know, these are things that he was quite aware of. He knew he was going to be betrayed by Judas, someone who he loved, someone who he cared for, someone who he spent intimate time with for three years. He knew that he would be abandoned by all the disciples, all those men closest to him. He knew that he was going to be denied by Peter, someone that he loved dearly. He knew he would be mocked and have his face badly beaten. He knew he'd be deprived of sleep, which would only intensify his suffering. He knew that he was going to be brutally scourged. He knew that he was going to be mocked, that he was going to be spit upon, have a crown of thorns beaten into his head. He knew that he would be forced to carry his own cross and that the weight of it would cause him to collapse. He knew he'd be nailed to a cross and go through the horrible agony that he had to until he ultimately died. But worst of all, he knew that he would be forsaken by the Father. He knew that the wrath of Almighty God would have to be poured out upon him because he was taking upon himself the sin of the world. Now I want you to think about something. If you knew that you were going to suffer one of the worst possible ways imaginable, and it was going to happen in just a few days, what would your response be to that? How would you be feeling knowing what was coming? I'm sure that most of us would be troubled. That would be not something that we'd be looking forward to. That would be something that would be troubling us, knowing what was about to happen. And you know what? We're told here something that maybe you don't think about when you think of Jesus that, you know, oh man, he just, nothing bothered him. Well, no, we're actually told that the knowledge of what was coming, look at what Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. He knew what was coming and there was a trouble that came to his soul because of it. He recognized the reality and the magnitude of what he was about to endure. We see this even more in an intense way in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, the night of the start of all this happening, there's few days before it's going to happen here, but that very night, the night that he's betrayed, the night that he's denied, the night that the beatings start for him, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And we're told that as he's praying, he is sweating drops of blood. Now, this is something that physically can happen to someone, but they have to be under immense stress. And so we see that in the garden, we see this troubled soul of Jesus had so much stress because of what's about to come to him that he's sweating drops of blood. And just a few days before this, as we see here in John chapter 12, Jesus is bringing this reality of, hey, my soul's troubled because I know what is about to come. I know what I'm about to have to endure. But I want you to notice the most important thing about this. I bring this up because as Jesus' knowledge of what's coming is troubling his soul, notice the response that he has. Notice how he deals with what's coming and the troubled soul that he has because of it. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose, I came to this hour. You know, Jesus poses a great question. Since my soul is troubled because of the knowledge that I have of all the suffering that I'm about to go through, what shall I say concerning these things? You know, what would you say concerning these things? And Jesus poses this question, should I say, Father, save me from this hour? What Jesus is saying is, you know, should I ask the Father to save me from this suffering that's about to come my way? Should I ask the Father to deliver me from the cross so I don't have to go through all that pain and all that heartache and all that misery? Should that be my response to the suffering that I have and to my troubled soul? Now, I'm sure for most of us, that'd be the response that we would have. You know, if we knew suffering was coming at that immense level into our life, we'd be like, God, save me from this. I'm sure we've prayed that prayer many times. I'm sure many of you might be praying that prayer now with the coronavirus and maybe losses of jobs or other things that are coming. That That's our typical response. Deliver me from this. Take me away from this. I don't want to have to go through this. And so Jesus is saying, in response to my troubled soul, in response to what's coming, should that be the way in which I respond? Should I ask the Father to save me from this hour, to deliver me from it, to remove it from me? Thank goodness that is not the way in which Jesus responded. You know, if Jesus did respond that way, we'd have a big problem. If He didn't willingly go to the cross then all of us would still be dead in trespasses and sins. All of us would no longer be able to have a relationship with God, but worst of all, all of us would be going to hell for all eternity. If Jesus' response to the cross was, you know what, it's too much for me. Father, save me from this, deliver me from this, then we'd be in big trouble. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus' prayer? Hey, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but... Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew there was no other way. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly endured the suffering for you and for me. And so he poses this great question. Should I respond to my suffering and trouble by asking the Father to save me from this hour? And then Jesus answers the question. And the answer reveals something very important about him and about why he came Jesus says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to ask the Father to save me from the suffering, to save me from what's coming my way. Why? Because this is the main purpose of why I came to this earth. I didn't just come here to be born from a virgin. I didn't just come here to live a sinless life. I didn't just come here to do miracles and to disciple people. The main reason I came was for this hour, for this moment, to give my life on the cross, to die for the sin of the world. That was the main reason I left the throne of heaven and came down to earth. It was for this purpose. And so it's all built up to this culmination. And so I'm not going to now say, all right, forget it. Father, save me from this because this is the purpose. This is the reason for why I came to the earth. So Jesus doesn't want to be delivered from the cross because that's why he's here. That's why he came. That's the ultimate purpose. But here's the main thing I want you to note. Because it's going to answer the first question that we have, which is what was Jesus's greatest purpose? You see, Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming to the earth was to die on the cross for our sins. But here's something I want you to know in verse 28, 
we're told what Jesus's ultimate purpose was at the cross. It reveals to us the main thing Jesus wanted to accomplish at the cross. Because what Jesus wanted to accomplish at the cross is ultimately the greatest purpose for why he's here. Notice what verse 28 tells us. Father, glorify your name. As Jesus looked towards the suffering that he was going to have to endure at the cross, the main thing that he wanted to accomplish as he went through all of those things was to glorify the Father. That was his main purpose. That was his main desire. That was the main thing that he wanted to accomplish in that. And so notice that Jesus prays a very simple yet profound prayer that's only four words. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' prayer reveals that his greatest purpose was to glorify the Father. You know, when you and I look at the cross, when we look at what Jesus did on the cross for us, we typically conclude that his greatest purpose in going to the cross was to save us from our sins. Now, one of the most important purposes of Jesus going to the cross was to save us from our sin. It was to take our sin. It was to take our judgment. But that is not the ultimate purpose. That is not the main purpose. That was just one very important one, especially to you and I. But his main purpose was not to save us from our sin. His main purpose was to bring glory to the Father. Notice Jesus doesn't say in his prayer, Father, save your people. He says, Father, glorify your name. And in that prayer, it shows what the heart of Jesus was. Ultimately, as I go through this hour of suffering, this is what I ultimately want to accomplish. I want the Father to be glorified. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God, and then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God of God. I love this quote, but I think it's so accurate to the deepest passion and also the greatest purpose of Jesus. Jesus' deepest passion and his greatest purpose wasn't to save us, it was to bring God the Father glory. And one of the reasons that saving us was such an important thing for Jesus is because it brought God glory. And I like how G. Campbell Morgan brings that out of, yeah, it was first for the glory of God, but even the saving of us was ultimately because it brought glory to God, because that was Jesus's greatest purpose. And everything that you see, from his birth, to the miracles, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, to all that Jesus did, it was for the one main purpose of bringing glory to the Father. So the answer to our first question, what was Jesus' greatest purpose? His greatest purpose was to glorify the Father. Well, at the end of verse 28, we see the greatest purpose of the Father. And we'll get to answer that second question. What was the greatest purpose of the Father? Let's see what the end of verse 28 says. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
So after Jesus prays this profound and short prayer of only four words, Father, glorify your name, notice what God the Father does. He does something that he only does two other times in the life of Jesus here on this earth. He speaks audibly from heaven so that not only Jesus, but those who are around Jesus can hear. And so Jesus poses this prayer, Father, glorify your name. And right after that prayer concludes, this voice from heaven declares, notice this, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. You know, the Father's response to Jesus' prayer is just a wonderful promise. He knows that the heart of Jesus, the desire of Jesus, the ultimate purpose of Jesus is to bring him glory. And so Jesus prays that prayer, Father, as I look to this hour of all that's going to happen, my prayer is glorify your name. May you be glorified in all that happens. And the Father gives a promise to Jesus. And know the promise is both past and future. He says, I have glorified it. Speaking of, you know, in the past, all that you've done, Jesus, already has brought glory to my name. And here's the promise. I will glorify it in the future. What you're about to go through, all the suffering that's going to come, I will be glorified through what you are going to endure, ultimately to bring glory to me. So as Jesus prepares himself for the suffering of the cross, as he prays this prayer, Ultimately, the Father is glorified in all that Jesus does. You know, something important to understand is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're one. You know, the Trinity, it's, it's one God and three distinct persons. But the reality is the purpose of all these three distinct persons in one God is the same. They all have the same purpose, and that is to bring glory to God bring glory to themselves. Jesus' whole purpose, bring glory to the Father. And the Father's purpose, as we see here, is to bring glory to Himself. Romans eleven thirty six says, For of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things to whom be glory forever. I mean, the reality is God is the creator, God is the sustainer, God is the giver of life, God is the giver of salvation. I mean, everything that we have is from him and he deserves glory. He should be glorified and all that he has done is to bring glory back to himself. So the answer to the second question, what was God the Father's greatest purpose? His greatest purpose was to glorify himself. So as Jesus was a man on this earth, all that he did was ultimately to glorify the Father. And the Father does everything in sending Jesus and doing all that he does to glorify himself. Well, that leads us to the third question we're going to answer this morning, which is, what should be our greatest purpose? Now, before we answer that question, I want you to try to picture this scene. I want you to try to you know, put yourself in the position of all those who are there. Jesus' disciples, the followers, anybody who is in the vicinity of Jesus as he prays this prayer, Father, glorify your name. And then all of a sudden, this voice from heaven comes out and says, yeah, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And I just want you to picture being in that situation, hearing that voice from heaven right after you hear this prayer from Jesus and just think of how you would respond to that. 
And now we're going to see how the people who were there responded to that in verses 29 and 30. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sakes. So John here shares with us that there are two different responses to Jesus's prayer, and more importantly, the voice of God from heaven declaring that he has and he will glorify his name. The first group, they kind of miss it completely. You know, they hear this booming voice, most likely from heaven, and they conclude that it thundered. And so they miss not only who said it, but what was said. You know, they just kind of pass it off as, well, that just must have been thunder. Well, then the second group, we're told that they respond by saying an angel has spoken to him. And so they understand a voice from heaven actually spoke, and they heard the words of that voice. And so that was a good thing. They understand the message. They just didn't understand who the messenger was. They thought it was an angel when in fact it was God the Father himself. And so Jesus answers these two groups by saying this, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. You see, Jesus didn't need the Father to audibly speak in response to his prayer. Jesus already knew that the Father would be glorified in what he was about to do and that the Father had been glorified in what he already had accomplished. And so he didn't need this affirmation from heaven in this audible voice from God to be like, oh, I wasn't so sure. Thanks, God, for letting me know. That wasn't something he needed. This wasn't for him. This voice was not for Jesus to hear. It was for all those around Jesus to hear because they did need to know that all that Jesus has done to this point has brought glory to the Father and all that Jesus is about to do is also going to bring glory to the Father. This group needed to know that and so the Father speaks this for their benefit so they can understand who it is that stands with them. That's my son. He brings glory to me. He's someone that you need to believe in. Well, now Jesus is going to reveal to the people what he's about to do and how what he's about to do is going to bring glory to the Father. Verses 31 through 33 says this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. Jesus shares three very important things here with this crowd of people that they need to understand about him. And it's leading them to understand what he's about to do when he speaks of his hour coming. This is what's going to be accomplished in the hour that he is about to sacrifice himself in. And Jesus shares three things, and I want to start with the third thing. And the reason I want to start with the third thing is because the third thing makes the first and second thing possible. And so let's start with what he says in the third. He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, fortunately, John clarifies for us exactly what Jesus means when he says, if I am lifted up, John tells us, he said this signifying by what death he would die. Well, we know that Jesus died by being lifted up on a cross. And so when he says, when I am lifted up, he's specifically speaking about being lifted up on 
a cross. And notice then what he says will happen as he's lifted up on that cross. And on that cross, he pays for the sin of the world. And on that cross, he takes the wrath of God upon himself. He says, the thing that's going to happen is he will draw all people to himself. Now, before we get into the significance of how the cross draws people to Jesus, I just want to clarify something that's important of what Jesus did not mean when he said, I will be, if I will be lifted up. Jesus is not speaking about being lifted up in worship. And the reason I bring this up is because many Christians have misunderstood and misapplied this verse, probably because they just took this verse and didn't read the next verse where John clarifies what Jesus is speaking about. And so they just take this one verse out of the context and they come to a conclusion that what Jesus is saying here is if I be lifted up, meaning if you will worship me, the result of that will be, man, I will draw all people to myself. And so there have been people who thought, you know what, if we just lift the name of Jesus, if we exalt the name of Jesus, if we praise the name of Jesus, that's going to be what draws people to him. But that is not at all what this verse is talking about. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. Actually, there is a worship song that was written with this in mind. I'm sure that many of you, especially those of you who are a little older, know the song. It goes, lift Jesus higher. Lift Jesus higher. Lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. You know what the heart of that song is? Is a misunderstanding that if we will just worship him and lift him up, that's what's going to draw people to him. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not our worship that draws people to him. It's the cross. We don't want to miss this because Jesus is making really clear the thing that is the magnet, the thing that draws people to him isn't our worship of him. It's what he did at the cross. That's the key. That's what John wants to clarify here. It's the cross of Jesus that is the key to it all. That's the reason why we worship him as well. And so notice this. The cross is what draws people to Jesus. It's like a magnet. And it makes sense to us because you know what? At the cross, all the significant things for us as sinners transpired. Our sin was dealt with. The wrath of God was taken. The relationship that we can now have with God. All that comes back, salvation, it comes back to the cross. And so Jesus is saying, what I accomplished there at the cross is what is going to draw people to me. You know, and the reason I bring this up as well is because for some churches, we've lost sight of the significance of the cross and some have elevated the worship of Jesus to the neglect of, you know, we don't really need to talk about the cross. We don't really need to emphasize the cross because if we just praise him and exalt him, that's going to draw all people to him. No, it's the cross, the preaching of the cross, bringing people back to what Jesus did at the cross. That's the foundation of everything. And we can't lose sight of that personally as we share with people. That needs to be the heart. I want to tell you what Jesus did for you on the cross, how he died for your sin on the cross, how he took the judgment that you deserve because of your sin on the cross, that the only way to be saved for your sin is because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's why we're called to share the gospel and the heart of the gospel is what Jesus did at the cross. But as a church as a whole, you know, our preaching, our emphasis, our focus, it should always come back to the cross. And if we lose sight of that, guess what? We've lost the thing that draws people to him the most, which is the cross, that magnet, the thing that we need to continue to emphasize. Alexander McLaren 
He wrote this, The cross is the magnet of Christianity. Jesus Christ draws men, but it is by His cross mainly. You demagnetize Christianity, as all history shows, if you strike out the death on the cross for a world's sin. What is left is not a magnet, but a bit of scrap iron. The best way to draw people to Jesus is to tell them about what He accomplished for them at the cross. So the third thing that Jesus shares with this crowd is that He's going to be lifted up on a cross, and because of that, all men are going to be drawn to Him. And this is another way that He's going to glorify the Father. But because Jesus goes to the cross, because that's about to happen, the other two things that he shares now are made possible. Notice what he says. They're wonderful things. Look at these two things. He says, now the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What Jesus is revealing here are two very vital things that are going to happen as he sacrifices himself on the cross. Two very important things for you and for me. First, at the cross, Jesus will take the judgment for the sin of the world upon himself so that you and I can escape that judgment. And second, at the cross, the ruler of this world, which is Satan or the devil, whatever you want to refer to him, will be cast out. Meaning his rule, his reign over sinful humanity will be destroyed. So now people can be free from Satan's power, free from his mastery over their life, free to now have a relationship with Jesus and make God their master. You know, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it speaks of this thing that John is sharing with us here. It says this, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Here we're told in Colossians of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, how it saved us from our sin, how it delivered us from the enemy. And it's just a wonderful reality. And that's what Jesus is revealing the same thing. At the cross, sin will be judged so that sinners can be forgiven. At the cross, Satan will be defeated so that sinners can be set free. At the cross, sinners will be drawn to Jesus and those who accept Him will be forgiven and saved of their sin. And all of this brings glory to the Father. All of this is something that brings great glory to the Father. Well, let's see how the people respond to this news from Jesus in verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crowd is a bit confused. You know, many believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. But they had this understanding of what the Messiah would be that did not match with what Jesus was talking about. Well, wait a second, Jesus. You're talking about being lifted up on a cross. You're talking about death. But you know, when we look at the prophets who speak about the Messiah, 
We hear about an everlasting kingdom. We hear about something that's never going to end. And so we just can't get our heads around this concept that the Messiah is going to die when it tells us in the prophets that he's going to live and reign eternally. So how do we you know, put those two together? So you understand why they kind of have this issue. And the prophet that they're probably most likely thinking of, Isaiah speaks of prophecies about the Messiah ruling and reigning forever. Uh, um, Ezekiel does. But there's also Daniel. And since they bring up Son of Man a couple of times, they're probably thinking of Daniel's prophecy because he specifically refers to the Messiah as the Son of Man. And I want you to read you Daniel's prophecy so you can understand why they would be a little bit confused with everything. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. But notice this, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel, just like Isaiah and Ezekiel, they're speaking of the Messiah having this everlasting kingdom where he rules and reigns and it never ends. And that is what they were anticipating. That is what they were expecting. As I've mentioned many times, the Jews at that time had a belief in the Messiah and an expectation of the Messiah to come and to rule as king, to overthrow Rome, to establish his government, and that that ruling would never end. They were hoping, they were anticipating, they were desiring that. Now, here's the issue. What they were believing in wasn't false. It's just they didn't understand that the Messiah had two comings. You see, the Bible reveals at the second coming that Jesus is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom and he will rule and reign for all eternity. That that kingdom will never end. But that isn't the first coming. The first time he came, he didn't come to establish his kingdom. The first time he came, he came to deal with the sin of you and me. He came to die on the cross for us. And so they weren't looking for a Messiah that was going to die for them. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to rule forever. And so they're asking this question like, wait a second, the prophets tell us that the Messiah is going to reign forever, so we don't understand it. Now, the unfortunate thing for them is the prophets also said the Messiah would die. And so they kind of missed that. That didn't really fit with, you know, what they wanted. And so they kind of pushed those things aside. Yeah, we don't need a death Messiah right now. We need a conquering Messiah right now. So they kind of held to those. And they're just posing a natural, obvious question to Jesus of like, wait a second, this doesn't seem to compute because of some of what the prophets have told us. So how is it that you're going to die? We don't get this. And so how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Well, Jesus is going to answer them in verses 35 and 36. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So in Jesus' response to these people, he reiterates a very important thing for them. As they're thinking, oh, no, 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 the Messiah is going to reign forever. No, he's not right now. He will in the future. I'm the Messiah. And right now, guess what? He reiterates this. I'm just going to be with you for a little while longer. I don't have some elongated time that I'm going to be able to be with you. I just have a little bit more. Jesus knew I only have days before the cross. 
He knows what's coming. And he tells the people how they should respond to him, who he refers to himself as the light, which he did already earlier on in John, that he's the light of the world. He brings this back to their understanding. He says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus, as he answers these questions, he brings out two things that he wants them to do. And the first thing is walk in the light so that you will not be overtaken by the darkness. Jesus is the light and he wants them to walk in his light, to walk in his truth, because the darkness will overtake them. The darkness will lead them to something that isn't of him, that isn't true. And he's saying, just get a walk in the light and the truth that I'm declaring. But the second thing is even more important than that. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. As Jesus has said over and over again, you have to believe in me. I'm the light, and so you must put your trust, your belief in me. And you know what? The result of that is that you will then become children of God. You're going to become sons of light if you will trust in the one who gives light, who is light, who is me. You know, when you and I choose to put our trust in Jesus for salvation, when you and I choose to say what God has done and his plan to redeem me is what I'm going to trust in. I'm not going to trust in my own plan. I'm not going to trust in my own works. I'm not going to trust in my own efforts. I'm going to completely trust in the work that God has done for me. I'm going to trust in the word of God that has declared that this is what saves me. When we make that decision, that's one of the greatest things to bring glory to God, to say, you know what? I am not relying on myself and my works and my efforts and what I can do. I am solely relying on you and what you have done for me and the sacrifice that you gave on the cross. It's all about you. It's all about your will and your plan to save my life. When we come to that place and we put our belief in what Jesus has done, that brings great glory to God. You know, Jesus is our perfect example. In every area of our life, if we look to Jesus, you want to know, well, how should you do it? Look at what Jesus did. He's the perfect example. But you know what? As we see here, the example that Jesus set was the greatest purpose of his life was to bring glory to the Father. And the Bible makes very clear that that is the example that you and I as followers of Jesus should also have as the greatest purpose of our life. That we should seek to bring glory to the Father first and foremost before anything else. So the answer to the third question, what should be our greatest purpose? Our greatest purpose is to glorify God in all that we say and in all that we do. You know, the Westminster Catechism, it was put together by the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, and they, you know, they wanted to go through Scripture, they wanted to come together, they wanted to make sure they were in full agreement of what the Word of God was teaching and they pose a very important question. The question is, what should be man's, uh, well, they say, what is the chief end of man? Meaning, what is man's greatest purpose? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, the reason the Westminster Catechism came to this conclusion is because the Bible clearly reveals that is the chief end of man. That should be our greatest purpose. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6.20, 
For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now here's the reality. At the cross, Jesus paid the greatest price possible, the most expensive way to give. He gave his life the most valuable thing he had. And in doing that, he bought you and he bought me. That's the saying, we were bought at a price, the most expensive price there is. And so guess what? Now you're God's. He bought you. That's what the Bible speaks of redeeming you. He bought you back to himself so you could have a relationship. And because he paid that ultimate price for you, the response to be, well, now in everything that I do and everything that I say, eating, drinking, whatever I do should all be to glorify God. That should be my ultimate purpose. My greatest purpose in life should be to bring glory to the one who deserves all of it. And when your greatest purpose is glorifying God, it's going to impact the rest of your life. As I shared at the beginning, that ultimately shapes your priorities, it shapes your goals, it shapes your actions, it shapes your attitudes. And this is why it's so important for you and I to say, you know what, my greatest purpose is going to be to glorify God because I want that to shape the priorities of my life and the goals of my life and the actions of my life and the attitudes of my life. When your greatest purpose is to glorify God, guess what? Then your priorities will be centered around giving God glory. That's going to be the number one priority of your life. It's going to be the filter that you use to determine what you pursue, what it is that you're going to make a priority. Well, if it doesn't glorify God, I'm not going down that. If it doesn't glorify God, I'm not going to pursue that. Your goals in life are going to be centered around how you can glorify God. And anything that does not glorify God is no longer going to be a goal that you seek to accomplish in your life. Your actions are going to be centered around glorifying God. Before you choose to say or do anything, you're going to ask a very important question. Will what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do glorify God? And if the answer is no, then you're going to say, I'm not going to do it because I want my actions to glorify God in all that I say or do. Your attitude will be centered around glorifying God. That's where you're going to get the greatest pleasure the most joy, then you're going to be miserable in pursuing the things of this world if your true purpose, the greatest one in your life is to glorify God, then that is what's going to bring you the most pleasure, the most joy is when you actually do glorify God in your actions and your words and all that you say and do. So what you have as your greatest purpose is extremely important because it shapes the rest of your life. And my challenge to you and my challenge to myself as we conclude here is follow Jesus' example and make the greatest purpose of your life to glorify God in all that you say and all that you do. And I want to challenge you to ask a question. Over and over again this week and the week following that and the months following that, ask a question. Get into the habit of asking the question, will this glorify God? You know, before you say something, ask the question. Is what I'm about to say going to glorify God? And if the answer is no, bite your tongue. If the answer is no, don't say it. And if you don't know the answer, you probably shouldn't say it either. Unless you're confident that this is going to bring glory to God, don't say it. Before you post something on social media, ask yourself the question, will this glorify God? 
If the answer is no, then don't post it. Before you respond to a difficult coworker or a neighbor or a family member or a friend, especially when you're upset, ask yourself the question, will this response of mine bring glory to God? If the answer is no, then don't do it. You know, before you start ridiculing and bashing politicians or, or people with a different viewpoint than your own, ask yourself the question, will this bring glory to God? And if not, don't do it. You know, before you start complaining about all the effects of the coronavirus, ask yourself the question, is what I'm about to complain about going to bring glory to God? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. If our greatest purpose was truly to glorify God, you know, it would revolutionize every single area of our life. If you want a wonderful change in your marriage, if you want to be a much better parent, if you want your relationships to thrive, if you want spiritual maturity in your life, you know what? The best thing that you could do is make the greatest purpose of your life to glorify God because that will have an impact on every other area of your life and it will start to thrive because you're going to be doing what God desires you to do. Let's pray.